Yes, as Jeff said, if you've not met me before, my name is Jack, and I am one of the small group leaders here at King's Church Lewis. And we are going to be looking together at a bit in the Bible, which is Mark chapter 8 and verses 27 to 35. Uh, If you want to turn there, and we're going to be looking at the most important question in the universe. This is the most important question anybody could ever possibly ask you. But before we read that passage and before we delve into that question, I want to talk about and just tell you about something that happened to me many, many years ago. I was still at college and it was uh, my friend Dave. My friend Dave was having uh, some issues, shall we say, with the ladies. Uh, There was this one girl in particular that Dave had had his eye on and that he was really really liking. And uh, he, he came to me and he said, uh, Jack, look, things were going really well between us. It was, it was going great. We were having fun. But then all of a sudden, it kind of got confusing. It got a bit awkward. And I, I don't really understand what's happened. And he came to me and a, and a group of close friends for, for counsel, for help, for advice. Um, and so we, we sat down and we went, okay, Dave, Let's ask you a few questions. And uh, he goes, sure, ask away. Uh, First question, have you initiated, have you had some time together where it's just you and her? He said, yeah, about four, maybe five times. Okay, good, good to know. Second question, in this alone time together, did you ever hold her hand? Yeah, a couple of times. Okay, okay. Last question, Dave. Have you had the talk? He said, the what? Oh, Dave. (laughs) We found your problem. Have you had the talk? Because this is the problem here. She's starting to think about some things. Where's this going? How is this happening? Where, Where will we be in a year's time? She's asking some questions and you need to have that talk to define some things. Tell me, Dave, you didn't kiss her any this time. He went, well, maybe. Maybe either you did or you didn't. Come on, man. Get with the program. You need to have the talk. Some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe it wasn't even that long ago, or maybe you're remembering the first time you met your partner. Maybe you're here and you're single and you've never had that conversation. Let me remind you, it kind of goes something like this. Uh, You're in a group of friends and you're chatting and you're having fun and you notice that in that group there's that one person who you're that little bit more interested in. And as you talk, everybody else kind of fades out the picture and it's just you and them and you're having really good conversation and you go, this conversation's just great. Maybe we should exchange phone numbers so that we can continue this conversation. And so you swap phone numbers and, uh, and you start texting each other. Parents who've got teenagers or, or children with uh, mobile phones, just so you know, this is when they're in that situation because the phone goes, they pick it up and they go, <laughs> and then they text back, and it goes on and on, and maybe that happens a few times, and after a while someone goes, hey, this conversation is so good, maybe we should continue this again face to face, maybe we should grab coffee or something. And so they meet up, and they meet up for coffee, and you sit there, and you do that maybe two, three, four times, and then comes that time, where after you're a few weeks into it, you're alone, and the conversation kicks off. 
And, and the guy goes, <clears throat> you know, it's been really fun these last few weeks just, you know, hanging out together. And she goes, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been really nice. Yeah, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, me too. It's, I mean, it's cool. It's cool. She goes, yeah, I like hanging out with you too. And he's like, yeah, yeah, because it's funny. Like, some of my mates have said some things. And, and they're like, they've said some things? I mean, they've been saying stuff to me too. They're talking to you. What kind of things? Yeah, they're like saying things like, is she your girlfriend or something? And then someone initiates it. Maybe it's her. I don't know. And she goes, ha, what do you say when they say that? <laughs> and let me tell you, how you answer that is going to determine some things. Because she's not asking for an identity. I just say your name's Jenny, you know that. She's asking for who am I to you? She's not asking for identity, but association. How are we connected? And if you just say we're a great friend, you're going in one direction. But if you answer differently, then you've got a whole new scenario playing out for the next part of your life. All down to that talk. Now, why am I telling you this? It's because that's what we're looking at here in Mark chapter 8 today. That's the passage we're going to read. Because Jesus and his disciples, they've been hanging out together. They've seen what Jesus has been doing. They've heard what Jesus has been saying. They've spent the best part of a year following Jesus. Seeing what he's about. And then we get to this bit in the book of Mark. And if you read the whole thing, it's the... It all hinges on this moment, this conversation. The first half of the book all builds to this crescendo and the second half of the book explains what's happened in this conversation. Where Jesus is going to ask the question, who am I to you? Jesus initiates with his followers the talk. Mark pivots his whole gospel on it. He explains who Jesus is, and then he poses the question, who is Jesus to you? So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 8, and starting in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called to the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So it all kicks off that Jesus starts and he takes his disciples out to a place called Caesarea and Philippi. Which is the furthest north they will travel together in all of the three years that they're there as a group. 
Jesus takes them to the outskirts. He takes them to the furthest point away they could possibly go from the hub of Jewish life in Jerusalem. They're in a remote part of Israel. Just Jesus and his disciples. And he initiates this conversation with his boys. He asks them, who do people say I am? He says, when you're out and among all the people of this world, when you're doing your shopping, when you're getting a cup of coffee, what is the word on the street about me? What are they saying? And their response is, John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And everyone in verse 28 of Mark chapter 8 has this in common, that they're a great messenger of God. Luke's version tells us that they think he may even be a prophet who's even risen from the dead. He might be some, some spokesman for God who's been reincarnated. The, what we see is that the crowds, what they see you doing, Jesus, they think you're profound. They think you're mystical. They think you're a good teacher. They think you're a really, really nice guy. And if you were to go around the world today, that, all through history, that's kind of where the crowds have put Jesus. If you were to ask people around Lewis today, and you were to say, what do you think about Jesus? They would describe him as a good messenger, maybe a political revolutionary, or even an ethical teacher. They'd say, he's a great guy, but that's it. And so the crowds, they have this view of him which is generic, But then Jesus looks at his disciples, and in verse 29, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And we realize that Jesus, he really asked that first question to get to this second question. He has a question for his boys. He's started the talk. Where are we? Where are we going? You've seen me. We've been hanging out for some time. The rest of the world has this opinion of us, but what do you think? I mean, really imagine the situation. They're in this remote place. Maybe it's dark. I like to imagine they're sat around a campfire. I don't know why. It seems what guys should do. And they're sat there. And, and he goes, Jesus, pipes up, what, what, what are people saying about me? And, uh, and one of the disciples, he pipes up and goes, do you know what? They think you might be John the Baptist. And everyone starts laughing. Another one chips in and goes, hey, one of them thinks you might be Elijah. Next, oh, that's funny. Oh, that's really funny. And another one chips in, oh, they think you're one of the prophets. Oh, my word, that's hilarious. And Jesus goes, hey, what about you? And it's silent. All you can hear is the crackle of the fire in the back. And it's at that point, Peter gets serious. He says, we think you're the Messiah. We think you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And at this point, they don't really understand the implications of what they've said. And so in the next verse, Jesus warns them. He says, don't tell anyone about this. Keep it stum, boys. Keep it to yourself. But what they have said is something incredibly important. The rest of the world thinks you're a great guy, but we think you're that one guy. That when the world went wrong right back at the beginning, and God promised us a boy, and somehow this boy is going to make everything right again, 
we think you're that guy, the one we've been waiting our whole lives for. And something amazing happens when they identify with Jesus in that way. And you see it in verse 31. It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Notice the word began. It's when they made that commitment to Jesus, when they define the relationship, when they had the talk, that suddenly Jesus then begins up a whole, open up a whole new world to them, which he hasn't said before. And in that moment, a principle plays out which you all have known and will know in every relationship you've ever had in your life. And that is with greater commitment comes greater intimacy. That if I can show that in this friendship, I am here, I'm for you, and I'm not going anywhere, then I'm going to share some more things about myself to you. With greater commitment comes greater intimacy. And that's what we see here. They all think this about you, but we think you're the Christ, that guy. And Jesus says, all right, you've got it. Now let me tell you some things about this. And he says in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He says, you want to know who I am and why I'm here? Well, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, but I'm going to die. And then I'm not going to stay dead. And sometimes you might read that, and if you've been a Christian or you've been around church for any period of time, you might think, well, duh, isn't that Jesus 101? That's the basics, isn't it? Surely they knew that. But it says in verse 32 that Jesus spoke to them plainly about this. See, before Jesus has already said it, but in kind of a funny language, cryptic in some ways. He'd say things like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it again. And everyone would go, what? That thing's huge. Or he'd say, the bread of life must be broken. And everyone goes, huh? But here, he says it plainly. He says, you guys, you're committed to me, so I'm going to be straight with you. There's no hiding it. There's no cryptic language. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. But I won't stay dead. This is what I'm about to do. And from this point on, Jesus starts moving towards the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 31, it says he must suffer. He must be rejected. He says it has to happen. It is necessary. And this isn't Jesus just saying, this is what's going to happen, guys. You know, hey, everyone, it's been really fun to get to know you over the past year and in two years' time. That's it. He's saying, I have to do this because the solution for the problem of sin in humanity is a suffering savior. And you see, on the cross, the justice of God and the love of God meet in that moment. God has to punish the penalty of sin, wickedness, and evil in the world. And yet he loves us enough to let that punishment fall on his son and not us. He says, do you see what I'm about? I'm going to suffer for you. And Peter, he's like the rest of us. We love the idea of walking with God, getting to know God. Love, love, love. It's all wonderful. 
But we hate the idea of suffering, pain, and death. So he gets Jesus and he pulls him aside and he says, listen, Jesus, you're the Messiah. This death thing's not going to happen for you. Cheer up. Stop being so negative. And Jesus turns around and he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the interests of God, but you've got the interests of man. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the plan of God without the suffering Savior is satanic. If you take God's plan for this world and you remove the suffering part, it's evil. Jesus says, I must die for you. I must suffer. The way of glory is down a road of pain. But the scary thing is that when you get to the next verse in 34, it's not just for him alone. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He says, I am on my way to suffer and die to save you. And if you really want to follow me, if you really want to be a true believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, not just watching me while I go around handing out bread to people who are hungry, not just observing me when I'm healing people and raising the people from the dead, not just seeing me speak, but actually doing what I do. If you want to come with me, then you can. But know this, I am going to be walking you down a road which is filled with pain. With greater commitment comes greater intimacy, but it's at a great cost. Jesus is saying, if you come after me, if you walk where I'm going, if you truly follow me, you will get the greatest of joy, but you will also get great pain. Through my pain, I'm going to save you. And if you proclaim my message like I'm telling you to, then you're going to reach opposition, you're going to reach pain, and you're going to suffer as well. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Do you want to know God? Then know this, it's a free offer through Jesus Christ himself. And that commitment to him will bring you intimacy with God, which cannot compare with anything else. But it comes at a great cost. The road of glory is down a road of pain. And Jesus lays it out like this. He says, you must deny yourself. You no longer get to go wherever you want to go. You no longer get to do whatever you want to do. You no longer get to spend your money on whatever you want to spend your money on. And as well as denying yourself, he says, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to take up that instrument of death and humiliation. The reality, Jesus says, is if you want to walk with me, you're going to have to die to some things. There are people in this world who enjoy things which you're not going to get to enjoy. There are places people go which you're not going to get to go. And as you choose a different path from you, they're going to mock you, they're going to ridicule you, and you will suffer. And I know lots of people, myself included to some extent, who have lost friendships, jobs, and social standing 
all because they follow Jesus Christ. And it's not that God hates those things and he doesn't want you to have them, but it's that they're not the goal of life. They're not the point of life. There's a self-denial, there's a cross, and Jesus says, you follow me. It's not your path anymore, it's not your plans, it's not what you want to do. Instead, you look to me as your Lord and Saviour, and I take you where I want you to go. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, doesn't that sound fun? This is now Jesus the Evangelist. This is so good that it says, he not only says it to his disciples, but he gathers a crowd. Gather around everyone. Come get some pain. Why would you do that? Who is going to come? What? Why would you pay that cost to follow Jesus Christ? Well, let me put it this way. I used to share a house with a guy that many of you here may know. His name is Dan. Dan, stand up. <laughs> Come on, Dan. Yeah. This is Dan, everyone. And I'd just like to say that on, uh, I believe it was the 29th of March, Dan died. Sit down now, Dan. Dan died because he got married. And let me tell you, every marriage is a death and every wedding is a funeral. Because the single Dan that I knew is now dead. No longer can Dan do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. No longer can Dan spend money on whatever he wants to spend money on whenever he wants to spend it. No longer can Dan come out when I phone him up and go, Dan, pub, football, now. He'll go, yeah, yeah, great. Oh, wait a minute. Hayley? <laughs> Sweetheart? Do you mind if I hang out with you? No. Sorry, Jack, something's come up, man. <laughs> it's over. He's dead. And let me tell you something. It's not just Dan. Haley. Hey. It's a death for Haley as well because she's married Dan. Amen. You can sit down now, Haley. She has married Dan, which means in her bed with all the frills, pillows, cushions, soft toys, she has got a man, a bloke who is hairy, who is sweaty. He's going <laughs> to snore. He's not going to tidy up after himself. He's not even going to respect that space because he doesn't understand or know what's going on. And you're going to communicate to him in ways which are going to confuse Dan. And he is not going to romance you on a daily basis because he doesn't know how. Married life, I'm sure it's great, but to me it appears to be sacrifice, pain, until the day you die. Why did I just sit back and let my friends do this to themselves? I didn't ask Dan or Haley this, but I'm sure if I had, it would have been because Dan would say, look, I know there's going to be times where this is hard, where this is difficult and it's uncomfortable, even painful. But I get someone and something so much better. She's worth it. And you know what? It's even more so when it comes to Jesus Christ. 
in verse 35, says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He says, do you really want to know where life is? It's not in a good marriage. It's not in a nice job with lots of money, with a nice car. It's not in having well-behaved children or a good relationship. It's in me. Those things are good, but they're not the goal of life. The fullness of life, it's in Jesus Christ. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is so much better. And so the four people that we've got getting baptized today, they're people who are standing up publicly and they're declaring that Jesus Christ is better than everything and anything else that life can offer. He's worth the cost. I'm willing to die for following him. He's worth it. And in getting baptized, it's not making them a Christian today. They, they did that when they made that first commitment to trust and follow him. But they're publicly declaring and saying in front of us all this morning, he's the goal of my life. He's the reason I live. And he's the purpose of my existence. And if you're a Christian here this morning, let me tell you something. We've got to die to some things of this world as we follow Jesus Christ. We can't do everything that everyone else is doing whenever we want to do it because that might be completely contrary to what Jesus asks. We can't just go where we want to go whenever we want to go there. Following Jesus, it affects everything. It affects your spare time. It affects your sex life, your friendships, your relationships, how you spend your money. It affects everything. But you know what? There are no victims in the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ is better than everything and anything else you can think of. He is better. And for those of you here this morning, you've never thought about that question. You've never thought about this before. You've never considered the question that Jesus is asking you this morning. Well, now think about it. Consider it. What's your answer? Jesus is saying, who do you say I am? Have that talk. Think about it. Define that relationship. Because that question is the most important question in the world. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's better than everything and anything else. And he's worth the cost. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for sending your son to suffer and to die for us. And that it is a privilege for me to, to take up my cross, to die to some things, to follow him. And I declare with everything I have, you are so much better than anything else the world could offer me. I praise you, Jesus, and I worship you this morning. Amen.